Jane Hess, editor of Respiratory Care. This month we publish four editorials, six original research papers, a case report, a teaching case, and four book reviews. We also publish the abstracts that will be presented at the Respiratory Care Open Forum, which will be held as part of the 54th International Respiratory Care Congress in Anaheim this December. Sarah, tell us more about the papers that will be published in the November issue of Respiratory Care. A study of the physiologic responses to a lung recruitment maneuver in acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome is presented by Mead et al. from McMaster University and the University of Toronto. The objective of this study was to determine the magnitude, duration, and consistency of the effects of lung recruitment maneuvers on oxygenation, lung mechanics, and comfort in patients with acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome. This was a prospective physiologic study at three tertiary care hospitals. The authors enrolled 28 consecutive eligible patients with ARDS or ALI and a PAO2 over FIO2 ratio less than or equal to 250 millimeters of mercury while receiving an FIO2 greater than or equal to 0.5. Recruitment maneuvers were performed twice daily for three days. The first recruitment maneuver was at 35 centimeters of water for 20 seconds. If the initial response was equivocal, the clinician immediately administered another recruitment maneuver at a higher pressure of 40 centimeters of water and then 45 centimeters of water or for a longer period, 30 seconds, then 40 seconds in randomized order. Each patient had up to six sets of up to three recruitment maneuvers. 27 patients met the criteria for ARDS at baseline and one had ALI. There was no net effect on oxygenation or pulmonary mechanics following the first or subsequent recruitment maneuvers. The largest rise in PaO2 was from 71 millimeters of mercury to 81 millimeters of mercury, and the largest decrease was 5 millimeters of mercury following the first recruitment maneuver. Augmenting the inflation pressure or duration had no significant effect. Over the entire study of 122 recruitment maneuvers, five patients developed ventilator asynchrony, three appeared uncomfortable, two experienced transient hypotension, and four developed barotrauma that required intervention. The authors conclude that these results do not support the addition of scheduled recruitment maneuvers to the usual treatment for ALI or ARDS. De Blasi et al. from Seattle Children's Hospital and Regional Medical Center present the study, The Impact of Imposed Expiratory Resistance in Neonatal Mechanical Ventilation, a Laboratory Evaluation. They tested two of each of the BabyLog 8000+, Avia, CareStation, and Servo-I ventilators. In the first phase of the study, they evaluated 1. The imposed expiratory resistance of the endotracheal tube during simulated passive breathing at various tidal volumes, positive end expiratory pressure, and frequency settings, and 2. The intrinsic PEEP at various ventilator settings. 
In the second phase of the study, they measured the imposed expiratory work of breathing at various PEEP levels during simulated spontaneous breathing with an infant lung model of respiratory distress syndrome. The imposed expiratory resistance of the endotracheal tube and each ventilator were calculated, and the intrinsic PEEP with various PEEP, tidal volume, and frequency settings were determined. They measured the imposed expiratory work of breathing with several PEEP levels during a simulated spontaneous breathing pattern. The ventilator's contribution to the imposed expiratory resistance was greater than that of the endotracheal tube with nearly all of the ventilators tested. There were significant differences in ventilator-imposed expiratory resistance between the ventilator brands at various PEEP, tidal volume, and frequency settings. The Baby Log 8000 Plus consistently had the lowest ventilator-imposed expiratory resistance in the majority of the test conditions. There was no intrinsic PEEP greater than 1 cm of water in any of the test conditions with any ventilator brand. There were also no significant differences in the imposed expiratory work of breathing between ventilator brands during simulated spontaneous breathing. The authors conclude that the major cause of expiratory resistance to gas flow appears to be the ventilator exhalation valve. Neonatal ventilators that use a set constant flow during inhalation and exhalation appear to have less expiratory resistance than ventilators that use a variable bias flow during exhalation. Next, we have the paper, Sex Differences in Ambulatory Visits for Chronic Obstructive Pulmonary Disease Based on the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey and the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey from 1995 to 2004 by Se et al. from Rutgers University. The objective of this study was to evaluate sex-related trends in physician office and outpatient department COPD visits from 1995 through 2004. The authors pooled data from the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey and National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey to derive national estimates of outpatient ambulatory COPD visits. For trend analysis, they stratified the data into two-year periods and by sex. The main variables of interest were the number of outpatient visits for COPD, patient characteristics, comorbidities, and medications prescribed. From 1995 to 2004, COPD-related outpatient visits increased among women and men. Oral corticosteroids and short-acting bronchodilators were the most commonly prescribed drugs for both women and men, and inhaled corticosteroid prescriptions decreased in both women from 20 to 11 percent, and men from 20 to 17 percent. In 2004, women surpassed men in outpatient COPD visits. COPD visits increased among both sexes, but the upward trend in COPD visit among women indicates that COPD is no longer a male-dominated disease. The paper 
Remember, nail polish does not significantly affect pulse oximetry measurements in mildly hypoxic subjects is by Yamamoto et al. from the University of Hawaii. The objective of this study was to determine if nail polish affects pulse oximetry measurements in mildly hypoxic subjects. At high altitude, measurements were obtained from a finger with nail polish and from the matching finger on the opposite hand without nail polish. The study was conducted with two brands of pulse oximeter and oximetry probes and nine different nail polish colors. The mean oxygen saturation from the fingers with and without nail polish, respectively, were 91.4 plus or minus 4.1 percent and 91.2 plus or minus 3.5 percent. The authors concluded that, with the pulse oximeter and oximetry probes tested, nail polish had no significant effect on the oxygen saturation measured by pulse oximetry in mildly hypoxic healthy subjects. Kathy Jones-Boggs-Rye from the University of Arkansas presented the paper Perceived Benefits of the Use of Learning Contracts to Guide Clinical Education in Respiratory Care Students. The author used an action research approach to implement the contract learning method in a clinical course. Clinical learning contracts were designed to provide students with the opportunity to focus on any identified areas of unsatisfactory or desired practice. The learning contract specified how the learner would acquire the knowledge and attitudes relevant to their selected learning experience. The learning contract was used as a learning tool and as evidence of the student's development in the clinical experience. 24 senior students in the respiratory care program in the College of Health-Related Professions, University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, prepared and used learning contracts during their clinical practicum for. After they had completed the clinical practicum and received their grades, students were surveyed about their experience with the learning contract method. The surveys were administered anonymously. 21 students, or 88%, returned the surveys. The respondents were overall quite optimistic regarding the learning contract. They generally agreed that they could use the learning contract with confidence and that there is an increase in student autonomy and motivation in scholarship with a learning contract. The author concludes that contract learning is favorable to students' knowledge and skill acquisition and can be incorporated into clinical education of respiratory care students. Next, we have the paper, Practice of Non-Invasive Ventilation for Cystic Fibrosis, a nationwide study in France from Faurou et al., representing the chronic respiratory insufficiency group of the French National Cystic Fibrosis Federation. The objective of this study was to evaluate the use of non-invasive ventilation for cystic fibrosis in France. The authors surveyed the coordinator physicians of every accredited cystic fibrosis center in France. 
The respondents represented 36 centers and included 15 pediatric centers, 13 adult centers, and 8 centers that see both pediatric and adult patients. The study included a total of 4,416 patients with cystic fibrosis at the time of the study, 168 of whom were using non-invasive ventilation. Non-invasive ventilation was being used more often in the adult centers than in the pediatric centers or the adult and pediatric centers. All the respondent centers used non-invasive ventilation as first-line treatment for severe hypercapnic respiratory exacerbation and for stable diurnal hypercapnia, especially when associated with sleep disturbance. Bi-level pressure-targeted ventilation was the preferred ventilation mode. Settings were adjusted based on arterial blood gas values, non-invasive evaluation of patient ventilator synchrony, patient comfort, and sometimes a sleep study. The surveyed centers reported a number of expected benefits from NIV, but few of those benefits have been proven. Problems with NIV are common and limit its use. The authors conclude that there is a relative homogeneity in these French centers stated indications for and use of non-invasive ventilation, which highlights their numerous expectations about the benefits of non-invasive ventilation and which contrasts with the few validated benefits. of adult-onset nemaline myopathy presenting as respiratory failure is presented by Kelly et al. from Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, Ireland. Nemaline myopathy is a rare congenital myopathy that generally presents in childhood. The authors report a case of a 44-year-old man who presented with severe hypoxic hypercapnic respiratory failure as the initial manifestation of nemaline myopathy. After starting non-invasive ventilation, his pulmonary function test results improved substantially, and over the four years since diagnosis, his respiratory function remained stable. There are few reported cases of respiratory failure in patients with adult-onset nemaline myopathy, and the insidious onset of this case is even more unusual. The case highlights the varied presenting features of adult-onset nemaline myopathy and that non-invasive ventilation improves respiratory function. open lung approach uses recruitment maneuvers and high levels of PEEP. The intent of such a strategy is to decrease the amount of lung injury resulting from repeated alveolar opening and closing. The use of this approach, however, is controversial for several reasons. First, this approach has the potential to subject already open alveoli to higher pressures, which might be injurious to the lungs. Second, recruitment maneuvers may not produce important improvements in arterial PO2 in all patients. Third, whether or not recruitment maneuvers afford a survival benefit for patients has not been shown. In this issue of the journal, Mead et al. conducted a clinical physiologic study of recruitment maneuvers and concluded that their results do not support the addition of scheduled recruitment maneuvers to usual treatment 
for acute lung injury and the acute respiratory distress syndrome. As Stapleton appropriately points out in an accompanying editorial, this study joins a growing body of literature that suggests that routine use of recruitment maneuvers in patients with acute lung injury is not beneficial and may be harmful. It may be that patients likely to benefit from recruitment maneuvers are those with the greatest amount of lung edema and those with the greatest risk of dying from refractory hypoxemia. Deciding which ventilator will be adopted is one of the most important purchasing decisions that will be made by a respiratory care manager. Published objective evaluations of ventilator performance can be helpful when making such decisions. The study by de Blasi et al. may be helpful in this regard. As pointed out in an accompanying editorial by Brown, there are few evaluations of neonatal ventilators in the peer-reviewed literature. De Blasi et al. found significant differences in ventilator-imposed expiratory resistance between ventilator brands at various PEEP, tidal volume, and frequency settings. Because this was a laboratory evaluation, studies are needed to determine the clinical relevance of these findings. Readers of the journal commonly provide care for patients with COPD. It is therefore interesting to learn about sex differences in ambulatory visits for COPD, as reported by So et al. From 1995 to 2004, COPD-related outpatient visits increased among both sexes. Oral corticosteroids and short-acting bronchodilators were the most commonly prescribed drugs for both, and inhaled corticosteroid prescriptions decreased in both women and men. Although COPD visits increased among both sexes, the upward trend in COPD visits among women indicates that COPD is no longer a male-dominated disease. Pulse oximetry is commonly used in the assessment of patients with respiratory disease. For older generations of digital pulse oximeters, there was a potential for error in the measured oxygen saturation in the presence of nail polish. Yamamoto et al. determined whether nail polish affects pulse oximetry measurements in mildly hypoxic subjects at high altitude with two brands of pulse oximeter and oximetry probe and nine different nail polish colors. Nail polish had no significant effect on the oxygen saturation measured by pulse oximetry in the mildly hypoxic healthy subjects in this study. Although these data suggest that modern pulse oximeters may be less likely to be affected by the presence of nail polish, it may nonetheless be prudent to remove nail polish, if possible, when making measurements of oxygen saturation by pulse oximetry. It is also important to appreciate that there have been no studies of the effect of elaborate custom nail decorations. This month, we publish a paper related to the science of respiratory care education. Rye used an action research approach to implement the contract learning method into a clinical respiratory care course. The contract learning approach was found favorable to students' knowledge and skill acquisition. Perhaps this approach is one that other programs should consider incorporating into the clinical education of respiratory care students. Non-invasive ventilation is being used increasingly in patients with acute and chronic respiratory failure. 
Faroe et al. conducted a survey in France to evaluate the use of non-invasive ventilation in patients with cystic fibrosis. They found that non-invasive ventilation was being used in 168 of 4,416 patients with cystic fibrosis. Non-invasive ventilation is used more often in the adult centers than in the pediatric centers and is used as first-line therapy for severe acute hypercapnic respiratory failure and with sleep disturbance. Although there are potential benefits of non-invasive ventilation in this patient population, few of these benefits have been proven. Although surveys such as this provide insight into the use of non-invasive ventilation in patients with cystic fibrosis, high-level studies will be necessary to determine when this therapy should be used. Non-invasive ventilation is also commonly used in patients with neuromuscular disease. Kelly et al. described the use of non-invasive ventilation in a patient with adult-onset nemaline myopathy. The initiation of non-invasive ventilation resulted in stabilization of the patient's respiratory function. In an accompanying editorial, Boitano describes many of the practical aspects of the application of non-invasive ventilation in patients with neuromuscular disease. Clinicians who are not familiar with the use of non-invasive ventilation in patients with neuromuscular disease will benefit from the practical tips in this editorial. This month's teaching case comes from King et al from the Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. It describes a case of severe bolus lung disease due to marginal zone lymphoma-associated amyloidosis. The authors make the teaching point that amyloidosis should be considered in the differential diagnosis of bolus lung disease. Bolus lung disease from amyloidosis can be progressive and severe. Finally, this month we published the open forum abstracts that have been accepted for presentation at the 54th International Respiratory Care Congress. We are pleased to publish an accompanying editorial by Editor Emeritus Pearson. This editorial provides a practical user's guide for attendees of the open forum to facilitate a critical appraisal of the validity and importance of the abstracts presented. This editorial is a must-read for attendees not only of the open forum, but for those attending abstract presentations at any venue. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.